The Bible is a book that is tremendously easy to oversimplify. That's probably true of all complex things. And so, of course, a, a book that's actually a library of books that spans thousands of years, um, that has significant points of transition, um, that sometimes functions in a tremendous ongoing narrative unity and sometimes uh, operates more like a mosaic, um, it takes a lot of time to read the Bible well. And one of the oversimplifications uh, that I think we encounter the most in our uh, false understandings of the Bible is that it's similar to the book of virtues. I don't know if you saw this uh, when you were younger, but it was basically, um, basically a collection of stories where every story had a moral. And so the characters were held up as virtuous to try and instruct young minds to be virtuous. Oftentimes, uh, we make the same mistake with the Bible, and for many of us, that's because we grew up in Sunday school. And so the major messages of our Sunday school experiences are, be like Daniel, be like David, do as Moses did. Now, clearly, there are good and bad examples in scripture, but one of the easiest ways to kind of burst the bubble of that oversimplification, that effectively what we have uh, is a book of moral examples to follow, to hold up the ideals of a particular community, um, are the sections that we never talked about in Sunday school. How much is left on the editing room floor? And I promise you, hands down, without exception, the five chapters we're going to look at tonight not a single one of them have you heard a Sunday school story about. I had a friend uh, and we worked on a, uh, a top 10 list once for a, for a youth group and it was top 10 Bible stories that make terrible children's crafts. And we'll encounter one tonight as a man literally severs a woman into 12 pieces and mails her off to the tribes of Israel. And so I, I envisioned a puzzle of 12 pieces that you could reassemble as a child. It just doesn't make any sense. Or the Song of Solomon pop-up book, right? There's just these things we don't do because that's not what it is. It's not a manual of virtues. And to be frank, this is probably the darkest section in Israel's history and the, um, the hardest to read uh, chapters uh, in the entire Bible in terms of their graphicness in terms of their ignorance and their horror. In fact, if we were just to read it, it's real easy to make another oversimplification, which is to see all of these horrible things and reduce the Bible to being the element of some barbaric world. And we go, look, I mean, how, can, how could this possibly be a positive religious thing when these are the things that it records? So for the book of Judges in particular, and specifically these chapters, um, let me help you with an illustration. See, this is what I mean when I say that the Bible is um, a little bit complex and it takes time to read well. Uh, if you've ever seen the first two Terminator films, if you've ever seen the other ones, I don't care. I don't think any of us do. But if you've seen the first two Terminator films, they're tremendously different. In the first one, Arnold Schwarzenegger plays the villain, this robot from the future that's there to wipe out the Connor family and change change this future rebellion war sent back in time. But in the second one, he's actually the hero. And if you watch the second one alone, like I did as a kid, parts of the movie don't make sense. 
Sarah Connor's initial reaction to Arnold Schwarzenegger isn't like stranger danger. It's like, you are my enemy. You are a monster. She runs. But the whole idea of what makes that movie work is in the context of the first one. What we read tonight is in the context of Deuteronomy. It's in the context of Joshua. It's in the context of Genesis. It assumes that you're familiar with the story up to this point, and if you miss that, then all you get is the darkness and you lose out on the point, okay? George MacDonald says this. He says, mankind, apart from God, will either fail miserably or succeed more miserably. That's a pretty good summary of what we'll see tonight. Just to catch us up where we've been in the book of Judges, we've been watching this cycle go on where the 12 tribes are living in the land Initially, they didn't follow God's warning to deal with the enemies in the land, but let them lie, coexist with them. And they begin to pick up their behaviors. They begin to incorporate their religious ideas. They begin to intermarry with their wives and worship their gods, uh, and their ethics divulge to the standard of that day. Because honestly, Exodus, Deuteronomy, it's a high point ethically in ancient history. And so they go through this cycle over and over again where they, uh, they're disobedient to the Lord. They worship gods that are not gods. And so God gives them over to enemies to get their attention. And then they cry out to the Lord and he raises up a local deliverer to do something about enemy A or enemy B. And as we've seen, it's not just a repeated cycle, but a downward spiral. And so even the quality of the judges, the deliverers that God raises up, get worse and worse until we get to Samson, um, who, who just doesn't fit his aspirations that are laid out prophetically for him. He doesn't fit the character of the earlier judges. Um, his, his life is one of shame, and yet God's grace in the midst of it is still visible. The other thing that's important for the book of Judges in terms of structure is that the author has selected probably not all the stories from this time, from this hundreds and hundreds of year period between the stories of Joshua and the coming of Samuel and the coming of Saul and the coming of David, um, but he selects them intentionally, one deliverer from each tribe of Israel to show holistically that there wasn't one true faithful remnant. It's not like the tribe of Judah didn't suffer these things. It's not like the Benjamites stuck it out for the long haul. The only tribe he hasn't talked about yet is the Levites. And we're not going to find a deliverer from the Levites. In fact, interestingly enough, if you read these last chapters closely, chronologically, they belong much earlier in the story the book of Judges tells. But he saved them for the end to make a point. He's been moving towards a climax, and unfortunately, that climax is in the gutter. It's in the bottom barrel of how bad things really are. He saved the worst for last, if you will. So let's pick up here in chapter 17. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me, I took it. So it begins with a confession. It's kind of abrupt, isn't it? A character we've never met, just some guy and his mom, and he took a significant amount of money. This is not her pocket change off the nightstand. 
1,100 shekels, shekels of silver is, is a sizable amount, pounds and pounds of pure silver, okay? And so he takes it from his own mother. And he tells her here, but I want you to notice why. He tells us why. Look at what he says. He says, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse. Okay. Now, significant translation issue here. We hear that, and we think that she swore under her breath, right? Like a parent might do if they were frustrated by something their kid had done. That's not what this is. When it says she uttered a curse, it means she said something similar to, may God curse the one who has done this. Okay. She's calling down judgment upon this person. That's what makes Micah uncomfortable. That's where he goes, oh boy, I really don't want those consequences. But to his credit, he comes forward and he confesses and he says, I'm the one who took it. So his mother said, blessed be my son by the Lord. Hear that for what it is too, not, not just a pat on the head and you know, oh, my sweet son, you did the right thing. It's a counteraction to the cursing. She's trying to reverse the reality that was. She had called down a curse, and now she tries to speak blessing over him. In verse 3, he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. Okay, now if we just stopped there, it's a pretty beautiful action. She says, you know what, take that 1100 and, and give it to God. I dedicate it on behalf of my son. But notice what it says next. What is he to do with it? To make a carved image and a metal image. Ne'er therefore, I'll restore it to you. That's the first place our mind goes, wait, what? You see, Exodus, Deuteronomy makes very clear, in fact, the Ten Commandments themselves that they were to not make any carved image of the living God. And so here, the lingo's right. The theology of blessing and cursing, that's Deuteronomic uh, theolo theology. This reality that God and Israel are in covenant and some things lead to blessing and some things lead to cursing. But when it actually gets to the practice of their religion, it's relatively far removed from where it should be. And so she says, here's what we can do. Here's a way to religiously take a step forward as a family. Take all of this weight of silver and make with it an idol that we can bow down to. Now, to be clear, most likely here, this is an idolatrous worship of the God of Israel. Okay? This is not necessarily uh, them worshiping other gods, but worshiping the God of the Bible in the same way that the nations worship their gods. But nonetheless, it's pretty far off the beaten track. It gets worse. Verse 4, So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image, and it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods. Okay, there's a step further. This isn't just representations of the God of Israel. This is a pantheon of gods that he worships now, a collection of gods, and he's got action figures for each one, right? And so he lays this out. He has a shrine. He creates an ephod, which is a priestly garment, okay? What is he doing? He is setting up his own religion, okay? It's a little bit smorgasbord. He's borrowing a little here. He's borrowing a little there, but Israel has a priesthood, 
This guy cultivates his own. In fact, what does it say he does here? He made an ephod and his household gods, and he ordained one of his sons who became his priest. So he goes to one of his sons, and he, he says, I'm going to ordain you. You're now the religious expert. You're now my access to the gods that I've made with my hands. I mean, if you're reading this from a Jewish mindset, it's a head-scratcher. It's, it's super strange. And so, verse 6, we finally get a little bit of commentary. We finally get some authorial perspective, and it is rare in these last chapters. It's very rare that the author goes, this was a bad thing. But he does tell us this. In fact, this becomes the repeated refrain of the last five chapters. He says in verse 6, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, when you read back through the story, does that make sense? Right? That's exactly what we see. This guy, Micah, he's doing, I don't know, call it the best he can, but he's the one driving. He's making the decisions. It's far from the God of Israel who says, this is who I am. Worship me in this way. Micah says, these are my gods, and here's how we'll worship them. Okay? It's, it's off the charts, and so the commentator kind of introduces what's really going on. What we just read was the cold open to the story. We're just dumped in the middle of it, and now the title shows up on the screen. In those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And he also makes a hint here of what a primary problem in Israel was in those days. There was no king. Okay. If we've been reading the book closely, you've probably noticed that the tribes are not only functioning separately, but oftentimes in conflict. There's no national unity. You go back to Joshua, and under Joshua, the nation was one nation working towards the same goal. You go back to Moses, and Moses was God's servant leading the whole people of Israel. But in the book of Judges, it's these folks here and these ones there, and sometimes they argue about stuff. There's no unity here. It also tells us something significantly about what God's plans are, where his trajectory is going, what his agenda is. He's going to bring a king. That last song we sang tonight, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, that's an appropriate application to what we read tonight. In fact, when we read the Bible, there's quite a few ways to connect the text we're reading with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not just something we do as Christians because we think Jesus is significant. That's something we do because it's how Jesus taught us to read the Bible. He spoke to the religious leaders who called these books, including the book of Judges, their scriptures, and he said, look, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have life, but it is they that testify of me. He says the Old Testament, it's ultimately a book about him. He's the main character. He's the main point. Now, some places that's relatively easy to do because the Old Testament is full of prophetic promises that point forward and say God is going to send a Messiah, speaking of Jesus. Other ways that we've looked at for Jesus have to do with typology, that sometimes God does things in human history that are more significant than just a happening in history. They actually have a pointing forward value. And so God effectively says, I need you to understand what I'm going to do, so let's do this so that I have a parallel. Okay? And so we get to the New Testament, and the New Testament authors say the temple was a type of Christ. The sacrifices were a type of Christ. This bronze serpent in the wilderness raised up on a pole. Even Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac, his only son whom he loves in Genesis 22. 
It's typological. It's a shadow of what's to come. It's the type, and Jesus is the archetype. But one of the ways that we often miss that the Bible points to Jesus is in demonstrating our need for him. Effectively, what we get tonight is a worship of God without God. What we get is the religious sensibilities of us as we are as human beings. What we get is the degradation that we're capable of. What we get is Israel's tremendous failure to keep the covenant that God so graciously handed to them. The book of Judges, the second half of the book of First and Second Kings, uh, the entire duration of the prophets, most of the Old Testament in general is just laying out this point that as long as the covenant relies on us keeping up our side of the bargain, we got serious problems. And so by the time we get to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they start saying, God's going to do something new. He's going to start a new covenant. He's going to take a living heart and replace your stony heart, Israel. He's going to take your dead bones and he's going to make them live. Instead of breaking us, because we broke the covenant that God has made, he comes and he's broken on our behalf. This is everything where it's going, but in the book of Judges here, when it says there is no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in, his, in, our, in their own eyes, let's recognize that this is, A, something we're capable of, and B, why Jesus had to come, why Jesus had to die. So, after that commentary, the story continues. Verse 7. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. Okay. He's in Judah. He's a Levite. Remember, they didn't have their own territory, so he's living in the tribe of Judah. But his role is part of the priesthood. Those who were scattered as God's representatives, they're the ones who are to teach Israel the book of Deuteronomy the books of the covenant, to lay these things out. And he's on the road. He's traveling, and he comes to the hill country of Ephraim. And so, verse 8, the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah and sojourned where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I might find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver of year, a year and a suit of clothes, and you're living. He goes, whoa, a real living, breathing Levite? Be my priest. I've got my own little temple set up here. It's all ready to go. I've been looking for someone like you. I've got my B-string son. He's, he's nothing. I'll pay you. I'll clothe you. And he says both this. This is how backwards this is. He says... He says, be my priest and be my father. Come and teach me. Okay. Now, what would lesson one have been? He's like, sure, I'll take the job. And he steps in and he goes, whoa, hold on a minute. Lesson one is stop worshiping idols. But that's not what happens. In fact, notice here, verse uh, 10, the Levite went in, verse 11, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man and the young man became to him like one of his sons. Now, 
that shows us how deep the problem is. These are the ones who tribally were assigned to maintain the faithfulness of Israel. The ones who were uh, called to regularly, generation by generation, teach the ways of Yahweh. And he walks in and he's content. He says, this is great. That's what I was looking for. I was looking for a place. And the place he finds is here in Micah's house as his personal priest for his pantheon of idols. But notice it says here that he became to him like one of his sons. Now, it may be that that's just speaking of the fact that they got really close. They're living together, right? He comes in, and now you're part of the family. But we just had an expression of family, didn't we? Be like one of my fathers. Come, instruct me. Let me draw from you. And he ends up just being one of his dependents. He has nothing to offer. Okay. And so this happens. And then, verse 12... And Micah ordained the Levite. Now, ordination is priestly language. There's a process for that. There's a way that that was supposed to be done. But Micah is, once again, the ultimate authority of his self-made religion. I mean, think of this. He comes to a Levite and he says, I, de- I declare you the priest. Now I listen to you. It's backwards. So he ordained him, and the young man became his priest, and he was in the house of Micah, and Micah said, and this is where we kind of get to the bottom of the barrel in Micah's Micah's theology, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. He says, that's all it took to validate my worship. This makes, you know, this is an upgrade of the quality of the worship I was asking God because I have a living, breathing Levite as my priest. You see, What's so interesting about this time in Israel's history is the mixture of truth and falsehood, of desire and wrong desire. And here, basically, and we saw this with the blessing and the curse too, there's an externality that still remains. But inside, they've completely lost the point. And so they go, oh, Levites make better priests. But they see that as just being some sort of... um, badge that just validates the worship as it is because I've got a priest on my side. The way they handle the cursing and the blessing, they believe that Lord is, the Lord is capable of blessing their life or cursing it, but it's superstitious, isn't it? In fact, it reminds us of Jephthah who sets up this vow and it looks like this honorable thing and then it leads to the sacrifice of his own daughter and you go, wait a minute, how did they get here? This is the dark ages of the Old Testament. Where the truth is there in semblance, but it's so diluted. And why is it diluted? It's diluted because the world around Israel has become the world inside Israel. It's part of them now. It's been grafted into their DNA. It flows through their veins and is expressed through their pores. And their worship becomes like the like the people around them. Once, like we said last week, this is the canonization of Israel. So, the chapter ends there, but the story doesn't. Again, we see repeated in chapter 18, in those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. 
So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtael, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. Now, we have a change of scene here, but we're going to come back to Micah and his worship in just a minute. But we move all the way to another tribe, this time the tribe of Dan. Now, if you remember from earlier in the book, Dan fails to take the ground that they've been given. It tells us that they were driven out of the hill country because of the chariots, and so they basically end up on the margins of this land that's been given to them by Lot. What we read about happening here is not about that land they were given by Lot. It's about an easier take. It's about something off the grid. In fact, it happens to be land that belongs to another tribe. Okay, here's what happens. God gives them enough land for them to dwell in. They don't have the faith to see God bring about the victory, so they end up cramped in just a little piece of the land, and they go, we need more. And instead of just getting back to the obedience that they should have done, they come up with a plan. Now, I want you to notice, if you're familiar with the book of Joshua, how similar this story is to one we've read. Okay? It sounds just like when the spies go into the land in Joshua's time. Right? You may remember when Joshua and his people are up against the river of Jordan, right about to enter in, Moses sends forward uh, a couple of spies to spy out Jericho, the biggest, most central, closest to the Jordan River city, big fortress. And so they go, and they end up staying in a brothel with a prostitute, and she hides them. And she says, the reason I've hidden you is because I've heard about the things your God has done, and I know the land has no choice, no chance. Please remember me and my family, right? This is Rahab, the harlot, okay? Now watch as we read this story how similar it is. Here, five spies of the tribe of Dan are chosen, okay? Go and explore the land, and they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. Now, in the Joshua story, they come to a pagan by the name of Rahab, who's a prostitute. Here they come to an Israelite by the name of Micah, who's a spiritual prostitute. If you read the prophets, they constantly make a parallel between sexual infidelity in a marriage and worship infidelity in idolatry, spiritual adultery, if you will. And so notice it provides almost a window into the part, if you will, that Micah plays in the story is the, the part of Rahab. But ironically, Rahab believes in the living God and responds and is actually grafted into the genealogy of Jesus. And Micah, that's not what happens at all. Let's keep reading. So, verse 3, when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of a young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What's your business here? And he said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me and I've become his priest. Okay. Now, once again, completely different tribe, completely different part of the nation. The question is, how are they going to respond to this synchronistic worship off the grid, away from the tabernacle, away from the ark? And how, look at how they respond. Verse 5, they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. They think, great, we could really use some advice. Now, we've seen many times in the book of Joshua, many times even back in the book of Numbers, 
the people of Israel inquiring of the Lord. And the assumption throughout that is that it involved these things that the high priest had, known as the Urim and the Thummim. Okay. Here, that's not part of what we're talking about. This is just some Levite. This isn't the high priest. He's wearing an ephod, but it's not the high priest's ephod. It doesn't have the Urim and the Thummim. In fact, the whole way this goes, look at how quick, how rapid fire this is. They say, will you ask God if, if this is going to work out? Verse 6, and the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. He says the right things, but there's no inquiring. He doesn't say, let me ask. He just speaks. This is a big problem that Jeremiah faces with the false prophets of his day. You see, Jeremiah has a hard message to bring, and he basically says, Israel, you're so far off the path. The only way you're going to save yourselves from utter destruction is repentance. And to some degree, it's too late for that. God is bringing in judgment. The Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to conquer. But Jeremiah wasn't the only person who took the label of prophet. And the king's courts were full of prophets who said, no, 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 no. Peace is what God has for us. Blessing and prosperity. That's the part here that this Levite plays. He just says what people want to hear. Now, we can't pull back the ephod and look into his heart and understand his motive. Is he deceived or deceiver? It doesn't really matter. It has nothing to do with the God of the Bible. He just gives them the thumbs up. He says, you know, choose your own adventure. Your destiny is before you. God has nothing but good things for his people. Side note, depending on where you put this in the book of Judges, it's an ironic position to hold that God is on their side because we've seen many things to the contrary. But, verse 7, the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there and how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that's in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealing with anyone. In other words, here's a small community that generally has had peace because they have a good relationship with the Sidonians on the coast, and so they're not really afraid of invasion, but they're also pretty far away from Sidonia. So they feel secure, They've got lots of wealth, and they go, that is easy picking. That's how they see this. Okay, verse 8. When they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtal, their brothers said to them, what do you report? And they said, arise, let us go up against them, for we've seen the land, and behold, it's very good. Once again, that's the language. That's the language that the spies were all about in the book of Joshua. In fact, those are the words of God himself. I am taking you to a land that is very good. And they speak this, and he says, And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go and enter and possess the land. As soon as you go, you'll come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there's no lack of anything that's in the earth. It's a perfect parallel of what God had actually done, and it's completely false. Here there's no actual in-tuneness with God. God already gave them a land to possess, and they did not possess it. This is something they take for themselves. Okay. So, verse 11, 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtal, and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mah Dan, which just means the camp of Dan, to this day. Behold, it's west of Kirath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. 
Okay, so the spies had gone through the house of Micah, inquired of the Lord. Now the spies and the army, these 600 men, come again to the house of Micah. Verse 14, then the five men had gone to their scouts out of the country of Laish, said to their brothers, do you know that in these houses there's an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore, consider what you will do. In other words, he said, hey, insider information. We've been here before. There's a whole fresh out of the box, already assembled religion. Did you know that? And he says, do what you want with that information. But it's clear what he's implying. Better us than him. And so, verse 15, they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Okay, so the five spies go, hey, Micah, how's it going? They go through the front of the tent and the 600 men They do something different. Verse 16, now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate, and the five men who'd gone out to scout the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with the weapons of war. So we've got a distraction, and then we've got a theft. Okay. So, continuing here. Verse 18, when these went into Micah's house, they took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image. And the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be a father to us and a priest. Isn't it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or a priest to the tribe and a clan of Israel? He says, look, you're just a family priest. Wouldn't you like a raise? Wouldn't you like a more significant position? Wouldn't you like a larger church? What's better, to be a family priest or a priest for an entire clan? So, verse 20, the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. Once again, we can't see the motives here, but think of how he sees this. His heart is glad. What is he thinking? He's like, what a tremendous blessing. My ministry has increased. What a great opportunity. But even the way it comes about, It's not your usual job offer, right? These men come in, steal the gods, and say, you might as well come too. And he goes, that is a great idea, right? It's super strange. It's so far away. But the thing is, any of you who have attended church long enough know that stuff that is just embarrassingly similar to this happens in Christianity today that our metric for success can get twisted and the way that we get, it, get uh, from A to B, from a place of unknown to prominence, can have all of these facets to it. Deceit, quiet meetings behind doors. And it has nothing to do with how God defines success. It has nothing to do with seeking the will of God. It's really just the worship of self, the promotion of self, recast in the worship of God. You know, if you're not a Christian here tonight, I think this is a really important point. The Bible believes that all human beings are fallen, which means that every Christian you've ever met is is as well. I promise you, in fact, the Bible promises you, they will be a poor representation of who God is at one point or another, at one time or another. The fact that there is a false church does not deny the reality of the God behind that church. In fact, Jesus talks about uh, the kingdom of God like a harvest. And he says, this is what it's like. It's like a man who sowed his field full of wheat, and then an enemy came in the night and sowed tares in the midst of the field. Now, if you're not familiar with farming, 
Wheat is edible. Tares are weeds that have no fruit. They, in, in fact, in their um, adolescent stages, you can't tell them apart, but when they get full grown, there's nothing there to eat. It just takes up the nutrients of the soil and the space of the land. In worst case scenario, it can actually impin, in, uh, hinder the health of the actual wheat. Okay? And so an enemy comes along and he's just trying to give this farmer a hard time and he sows a bunch of weeds into his crop. And so the farmhands come to the farmer and they go, hey, wait a minute, we just realized this field is full of false wheat. What do you want us to do? And the farmer says, don't try and pull it up because you'll probably pull the wheat up as well. Right? The roots are intertangled. If you, if you pull it up, you're going to grab things that are actually living and healthy. He says, let it last till the, till the harvest. And then Jesus makes his application and he says the same thing. That there's going to be this coexistedness of true and false, of faithful and unfaithful, of apostate and true. And they're going to exist until, you know, in the, in the farming imagery, we'll just let that imagery speak for us, some is gathered into the barns and the other is thrown into the fire. But that's what's going on in Israel. The, the language is the same, the affiliation, the badges, you know, that they would make, the t-shirts that they would wear, whatever. It all says, we are God's people, we are Israel. But you can look at their own standards and measure them by their own standards. One more thing, just because I can't resist. The primary way that we tend to deal with this, the primary way I hear from people who are critical of the church, has to do with hypocrisy. Just realize that that critique is Jesus's critique. That when you're taking this language and expressing concern, you're borrowing that from Christianity. You're using one of our own self-assessment tools. Okay? And it doesn't justify hypocrisy, but that possibility, that reality, and even the sensibility that you have, that comes from the DNA of Christianity. The, the term has to do with an actor wearing a mask, because in those days, uh, you know, you're in, you're in an auditorium, it's getting into the evening, things are getting dark. They would make these masks that had big, exaggerated expressions on them so that you would know if the character was happy or sad because you couldn't see his smile from row 35, okay? Jesus takes that word for hypocrite, a mask wearer, and he applies it to religion, and he says it happens here as well. It happens in all religions. It happens in all political parties. Hypocrisy is a part of life because there are advantages to pretending to be something you're not. But the scary thing about hypocrisy is sometimes, actually I would argue all the time, the person we fool the most is ourselves. Uh, J.C. Ryle, who, uh, who was a pastor a long time ago, he says, hypocrisy is not just a great sin, it's a great foolishness. Because the only ones you fool, it doesn't matter. And the one person that it all matters to, you never fool. Right? The only person you don't trick with your hypocrisy is God himself. He's the only one who gets a vote. But nonetheless, whatever's going on here, things are a mess. And so he goes, what a great opportunity. God has blessed me with a new ministry. And he goes with the Danite tribe. Verse 21, so they turned and departed, putting the little ones, the livestock, and the goods in front of them. Now that's weird. It's weird because where are they headed? To battle. Why do they put the soldiers in the back? Just in case Micah wants to try anything. Okay? They put all of the defense behind them to protect themselves because they've just stolen from this guy's house. 
another Israelite. Verse 22, when they gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the house near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What's the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what do I have left? How then do you ask me what's the matter with you? He says, you've stolen my gods and my priest, and you have the guts to ask, hey, what's wrong? Why are you in such a huff? Why did you bring all these people, these reinforcements? But also notice the irony here. You stole my gods. He, he doesn't see any problem with that. You may remember earlier when Gideon is called by God to tear down his father's altar to Baal. He's real scared about it. He knows that people worship Baal. An altar is a significant investment and it's of religious importance. He desecrates it. And the whole people come around and they gather around and they go, whoever did this should die. But then Gideon's dad has an epiphany and he goes, wait a minute. Who are we to fight for Baal? If he's really a god, he's totally capable of killing whoever desecrated this altar. It breaks the paradigm and he goes, the god I worshipped wasn't a god at all. There's a great story I read once. Uh, actually, I guess I listened to it on NPR. It was about the co court poet for North Korea during not the current reign, but his father's reign, Kim Jong-il. And so his job was effectively propaganda to praise the regime in poetical terms, to give words to the, the cult worship that is North Korea's government. And he was pretty good at it. In fact, he was so good at it, he was invited to the palace to dine with Kim Jong-il himself. And when he came, he was kind of freaking out because to him, this was a divine figure, more than any mere mortal. And when he came into the room, he was wearing elevator shoes big fat soles on the bottom. And then he watched how he treated his staff and his paradigm of worship was broken. And so he snuck out of the country and fled to the US. You would hope that's what happens here. That you would realize that the gods who can be stolen are no gods at all, but not at all. He's mad. He says, why would you take my gods and my priest? Notice how they respond. Verse 25, the people of Dan said to him, Shh, don't let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you and lose your life and the lives of your household. They say, hey, we understand. We appreciate where you're coming from, but some of these guys are real hotheads. You'd be better off just keeping it down. You know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like the mob. Doesn't it sound like the mob? Boy, it'd be a sure a shame if your house burned down, right? It's so passive-aggressive and threatening. You know, it's, it's playing the field in terms of policy, but it's really not what it appears at all. They threaten him. Verse 26, the people of Dan went their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, the priest who long, uh, belonged to him, and they came to Laish, a people quiet and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned their city with fire. Okay, this is unsanctioned warfare. It's advantageous. It's a people who are not equipped to fight. In fact, they only bring 600 soldiers here because they know that's all they're going to need. And then, verse 28, there was no deliverer 
because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. And in that valley, it was in that valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. And so their inheritance here becomes a single city instead of the territory they were given. And it's one that's not even in their land. But it's been sanctioned by this Levite priest that they found working for gods they're not supposed to serve uh, in, a, in a guy's tent and stole in the middle of the night. So verse 30, the people of Dan set up carved image for themselves and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites. That is the M. Night Shyamalan twist at the end. The whole time, this Levite has just been a Levite, and now we find out he's a direct descendant, only two generations removed from Moses himself. Okay. The canonization of Israel has penetrated to the very heart of Israel's faithful. The grandson of Moses, or maybe he's a few more generations down, but the fact that it lists two of them, most likely it's the grandson of Moses. He's the one who we're talking about here. His sons were priests of the tribes of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. Now, that is significant as well, okay? Because what happens? After the book of Judges, God raises up a prophet named Samuel. He unifies Israel, anoints a king over them, first Saul, and then eventually David. And then David's line reigns over Israel. And then in the days of David's uh, sons, there's a split. And then there's the northern tribes and the southern tribes. And during those days in the northern tribes, they set up an idolatrous worship center right here. And guess who they find to work it? A long-standing line of Levites who happened to live there because of an idolatrous worship center from the book of Judges. Okay. In other words, there's a flaw here that remains. Even when the nation repents, not only is their potential for turning away from the Lord still existent, but there's almost a propensity to it laying underneath because of these actions. And it even hints here, right here in the text, all the way to the time of captivity this exists, which points to what? Captivity. It just, it just pulls back the curtain, moves forward hundreds of years and says, this is where this story is heading. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of a series of unfortunate events. Right? Where the author promises you the entire story, book after book, volume after volume, that the ending's not going to be a good one, and yet you keep reading. Or if you've ever read 1984, I love 1984 because over and over the author says, we're going to get caught. It's, nobody gets away with this. We're going to get caught. And then they get caught, and you're shocked, right? That is good writing. The book of Judges has that same element where it, it tells us the story from the beginning, and then we have to kind of just watch it play out in slow motion. But Israel, as God's people, will fail, just as they are failing. So, verse 31, they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. Gives us one last contrast here. The tabernacle is existing at Shiloh. It's standing. God's plan for worship is present. They've made something else closer to home. They just coincide, worship at the same time, wheat in the tares. Now notice again in chapter 19 we get that repeated refrain. In fact, this last story, which is a long and sordid one, 
This acts as an inclusio, so it opens and ends with the same phrase to tie the whole story together, but it's the phrase we've already encountered. Verse 1, in those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem. So the scene moves, and now we have another Levite, okay, also moving through Ephraim, and he takes himself a concubine. Now, the word here is a difficult one. We know what it means, we just don't know why we know what it means. It's not a wife, okay? A concubine is a lesser status. Almost always, you have a wife, and then you get a concubine, okay? So, for example, remember the book of, the book of Genesis, uh, when Jacob... He has this woman he's in love with, Rachel, and he's going to take her as a wife, and he's deceived by his father-in-law, and he wakes up in the morning, and he's actually been sleeping with Leah. And so then he takes Rachel as a wife. So we've got two wives, wife number one and wife number two, and they have these servants who become Jacob's concubines. And it's all bound up in having kids. It's another sordid story in the Bible. That helps us parse out what we're talking about here, okay? So it's a difference in status, and it's also, I mean, it, it's not only removed from the, uh, the biblical ideal of a single wife by being polygamous, it's also closer to the concept of a woman as property. This is, sex slave is too strong of a term. We find those in the Bible too. But this is not a person who has any rights or status or any choice. This is this is the worst version we see of ancient history where women are treated not having any rights, okay? In fact, part of the clear point that this story wants to make is how much of Israel's behavior is to the detriment of women. And we've been watching this downward spiral throughout the book of Judges. It gets worse and worse. And so in the beginning, we have Deborah, a prophetess. She's faithful. She's a respected counselor. People come to her for their opinion. Barak is dependent upon her ministry. And now we're going to have a woman who remains nameless, who never says anything, who takes one place where she acts and then is ultimately acted upon until she's cut into 12 pieces and distributed. And she's not the only female victim of this story. So he takes a concubine. Okay, from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and there were some four months. Now the phrase there, the concubine was unfaithful to him, is a strange one. It's not, it, it doesn't mean that she had an affair or committed adultery. It's a little di bit different of a word. And some people suggest the best way to read it is actually that the concubine was unfaithful for him. In other words, he was pimping this woman out. Okay. Uh, but either way, she's unhappy with the marriage, and she runs away. She's unhappy with her status, and she escapes. She goes back to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. Honestly, I can't read this without thinking of a conversation a pimp has with his prostitute. He comes, flowers in hand, to speak kindly to her. Look, baby, you know I love you, right? Maybe I'm reading this wrong. Maybe that's not what's going on here. 
Maybe her unfaithfulness is the first trigger here, and it leads to the horror that comes next. But the way that the author tells this story, the heavy weight of responsibility is on the men. And so he comes. Her husband arose, went after her to speak kindly to her, to bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. Okay? So he comes with another person and then two donkeys so that they can both ride home together. Right? He's got hope and intentions here. When the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. Notice who doesn't. She's not mentioned as being a part of this, but the father comes and he says, all right, I'm so glad you're here. She's clearly present. She's part of the context, but she's on the sidelines for some reason. Verse 4, the father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they, the father and this man, they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. He says, hey, are you leaving so soon? I was just about to make breakfast. Why don't you stay just a little bit longer? Verse 6, so the two of them sat and ate and drank it together. Now, once again, the two of them there is the man and his servant, not the man and his concubine. They're drawn in. They're seated at the table. They're being entertained. The two of them sat, and they ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. It's such a great breakfast. It spans through lunch into dinner. And he goes, Oh, man, 9 o'clock already? Why don't you just settle in for the other night? He doesn't want him to leave. Okay. Now, this becomes significant for two reasons. One, because when he finally breaks this pattern, he starts his travel way too late in the day. Okay. And that's going to set up the circumstances that go so wrong. Two, this is going to provide a foil for what happens next. Because if you can fault this woman's father for anything, it's not his lack of hospitality. Right? Come, eat, more, stay. Stick around as long as you want. He's, this is Eastern hospitality at its best. I was in France recently, and one of the things I discovered about the French is that it takes an hour plus to leave a house. In the Middle East, in the ancient world, it takes days. It takes days because they took, it was so important to entertain. Okay. Remember Abraham? When the angels uh, come to visit him and he sees these strangers that he doesn't know from anyone and he literally gets up and runs in the tent and says, Sarah, start cooking. We've got guests for strangers. Okay. It's such a different world. We have to remember this. But here, this is being laid out to remind us what this is like because of what's about to happen. So, uh, he said, Be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. Verse 7, When the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he arose early in the morning to depart. And his father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. He says, Look, you got time. Traffic's light. Don't worry about it. So they ate, both of them. And the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart. His father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day is waned towards evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry, and tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. Okay? Second verse, same as the first. But now it's late at night, and this guy's had enough. And so he responds, verse 10, The man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabez. Okay, that is Jerusalem. Okay, now, so he leaves 
somewhere heading for evening, and he's on his road. He's got a day's travel ahead of him, but he's not going to make it. And so they come to what will eventually be Jerusalem. Right now, it's a Canaanite city full of Canaanites called Jebus. Okay? It'll be that way until David conquers it. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in. He says, Look, it's getting late. There's a motel right there. Let's just pull in and stop driving. Okay? But notice what he says. Verse 12, His master said to him, We'll not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but will pass on to Gibeah. He goes, Them? I don't know. It's kind of shady. That could be really dangerous. It's just a little bit further to Gibeah, and that's our own people. We'll stay with them. Okay. Remember this, okay? So many of these pieces are foreshadowing. We don't know what's coming. You might. But as we read it, we don't know what's coming, but all the words, all the happenings are going to come back to bite us. And so he passes on to Gibeah. Verse 13, he said to the young man, come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Now to us, that sounds normal. It's like, well, yeah, there's just a stranger sitting at city hall. You don't go, hey, it looks like you need a place to stay. But the whole idea here is that he has made his presence known in this small village and he's effectively saying, we have to spend the night somewhere. He's waiting for someone to invite him in and nobody does. That's not normal. And remember, this is not Jebus. This is Gibeah. This is his own people. And this sense of hospitality is gone. Okay? And then the scene shifts. We move outside the city. Verse 16, Behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field in the evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim and was sojourning, sojourning in Gibeah. Okay, so what's the difference about this man? He's not a Benjamite. He's an Ephraimite, just like uh, the, the Levite here is a Levite. But where does he live? He lives in the hill country of Ephraim. Okay, they have some familial ties. He's staying for some reason in Gibeah. He's on his way home. He meets somebody who's, who's from his own territory. He says, Ephraimite, he was sojourning in Gibeah. It reminds us again here, the men of the place were Benjamites. He lifted up his eyes and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord. Okay, now he's not. We don't know why he says that. He's just going home. But he's probably trying to incentivize things. Look, I'm a religious pilgrim. You can trust me. I'm not here doing some sort of shady business. It's not like I went to regain my prostitute so I could put her back to work or anything. I'm just on my way, a pilgrimage, to worship the Lord. And then he adds further. He says to him, uh, But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. He says, we're not even asking for somebody to feed us. We're fo totally self-sustained. We just need a place to sleep securely tonight. Now, that's above and beyond hospitality. He's, he's trying to sweeten the deal. He just needs a place to stay. And notice verse 20, the old man said, peace be to you. I'll care for all your wants only do not spend the night in the square. And so he says, hey, 
I'd be glad to have you at my house, and don't worry about all of your stuff. That's nothing to me. I'll feed you. I'll take care of you. We really encounter true hospitality here. And then there's this foreboding statement. And he says, just please don't sleep here. Right? And so, verse 21, he brought them into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. So he cleans them up, gives them a place to stay, he replenishes their animals, he cooks them dinner, and then verse 22, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. Now, this section here, clearly and intentionally, both verbally and even in its size, okay, this section here, Um, down to uh, verse 26 is exactly 69 words just like the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Clearly here, he's pulling a parallel, okay? In fact, it probably reminded you of that just reading it. Here, they come to the place. There's no one to stay. They're invited in. In Sodom and Gomorrah, it's into Lot's house. And in the middle of the night, there's a a knock on the door and there's all of these men outside and they say, hey, we know you've got a visitor in there. Bring him out here so we can have sex with him. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. What's the difference here? This is Benjamin. This is Israel. Okay. And so, verse 23, the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. He says, don't do it. This is crazy. What are you thinking? And at first, he sounds like a hero. He's standing up for the right thing. He says, no. I mean, to say something that's so obvious, rape is wrong. That's effectively what he says here. There's no value in this. He says it's a worthless thing. It's completely morally void. Don't do it. And then he opens his mouth again, and we start to question him as well. Notice what he says next. He says, behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them. Do with them what seems good to you, but against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. As modern Americans, we can't even parse the logic there, can we? And to be fair, I don't actually think we're supposed to. The idea that an average Israelite would be reading this and going, that's the right move. You protect your guests, okay? It's weird. He offers up his own young unmarried daughter and this man's concubine and says, do whatever you want with them. Just don't do this terrible thing with this man. Now, let me be really clear here. This is not just because we're talking about a homosexual act, clearly. Nor would these men qualify as being um, homosexual. They, whatever they're after... It's not just because they have an orientation towards men. They clearly are going to be fine with the women in just a second. And their real goal is violent. It's, at the very least, unhospitable. That's language that seems silly to use. But they want to put this stranger in his place, right? It's a terrible story. But this man, whether it's, and this could be the case, It could be that Israel has divulged to the point that women just have no comparative value. And so he feels the need to defend a man, and he's willing to put his daughter on the line. And this man's wife out there, I don't know. I don't feel the need to justify this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so notice what happens. Verse 25, the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. The host makes this offer, and then the man, the man with the flowers in his hands, who traveled all the way to the father's house to get her back, he grabs her, he opens the door, and shoves her out into the crowd. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And the dawn began to break, and they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. They gang rape her throughout the night, and she stumbles her way back to the door. And then notice verse 27, her master rose up in the morning. Just that language. He goes to bed. When he got up in the morning, it says, and he opened the doors of the house and went to go out on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hand upon the threshold. Why that detail? Because that should have been a place of security. It should have been a place of safety. She's reaching out to the relationship and to the place where she should have been safe. And notice how he responds. He said to her, get up. Let us be going. But there was no answer. She's dead. She weakly crawls her way to the front door and dies on the outside. And he rashly, like nothing happened last night, says, hey, we got to get out of here. What are you lazing about for? And then realizes she's dead, loads her up on the donkey. The man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house... He took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. Could it get any worse? I mean, let's be clear here. He does this to get the nation's attention, but he's desecrating this corpse. There's no dignity here. He sends the naked, severed parts of his wife in the post. I don't know if you've watched it on Netflix, but there's a documentary called Evil Genius about this crazy bank robbery that happened in Indiana in the 90s. And so the bank robber goes in, he hands the note, the normal thing, he walks out, he drives around the corner, and the cops find him just a parking lot away. And when he gets out of the car, this is all from the dash cam, you can see that there's something around his neck and his shirt is all puffed out. And he explains that he's got a collar around his neck and a bomb strapped to his chest, and that he's actually a hostage that he's been put up to this. And then the bomb goes off, and he dies. But one of the hardest parts of that story is for the family of this hostage, who was not part of the crime, because they wanted to keep the evidence of this collar bomb intact, they decided to decapitate him. And it's one of the great angry, you know, angers that his family has. They had to have a closed coffin funeral because the cops had made this choice to protect the evidence to remove his head. We understand that, don't we? This man is upset by what happened, but not for the sake of the woman. Clearly not for the sake of the woman. This is about him. This is about his honor. This is about his property. And so he sends these things to the mail, to, out to the uh, edges of Israel, 
Verse 30, and all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Why does he record that? Because even Israel is shocked, right? They've seemed so desensitized, but this they can't ignore. And so he gathers them, and I want you to notice what happens next in chapter 20, verse 1. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation. Okay, so from Dan to Beersheba means from north to south. It means from California to Canada. Okay. And then it says, including the people of Gilead, that's the people Transjordan, the ones on the other side, the ones just outside the promised land. Everybody comes out. Uh, and as one man to the Lord at Mizpah, now, here's a big irony in the story. This is the only time that a man summons all of Israel and they come. Right? We've seen close to this. Some of the tribes, somebody's always left off the table. And to be fair, clearly Benjamin is not included here. But for obvious reasons, that's where the problem is. But here, there's a possibility of the great judge, the true deliverer. And who are the enemies? The enemies are Israel. And so, the chiefs of all the people, verse 2, all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, and the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. You following the pronouns there? Me, 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 my. And she's dead. So I took hold of my concubine, and I cut her into pieces, and I sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed an abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all you, give your advice and counsel here. Did you notice what he left out of the story? He left out the part conveniently where to save his own skin, he pushed this woman out the door. He doesn't mention it. He, he bears no culpability here in his own mind, or he shamefully hides it. But either way, he says, abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. Verse 8, and all the people arose as one man. Finally, we have unity in Israel for civil war saying, none of us will go to his tent, none of us will return to his house, but now this is what we'll do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, meaning that they'll draw straws, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of the thousand, a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they've committed in Israel. All that part there about taking the ten and separating them, that's basically just saying they're not just going to attack they're going to siege. And so they take 10% of their army just to fuel the front lines, to gather food, to bring wood. They're going to do this till it's done, is what that implies here, okay? Verse 11, so all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man, and the tribes of Israel sent men throughout the tribes of Benjamin, saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. So they come to the rest of the cities of Benjamin, and they go, this is what happened. Give them up. 
We're going to attack your people. Here's why. And then look at how the Benjamites respond. The Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Blood over covenant. Family over righteousness. Verse 14, Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword. How, how big was the other army? 400,000. Okay. We're being drawn out to expect a slaughter here. But that's not what happens. Look, it says, Who drew the sword beside, beside the inhabitants of Gibeah who, mastered, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. You remember all the way back with Ehud, the assassin who was left-handed, and a Benjamite? Here we find that there's a whole group of these left-handed assassins. And once again, most likely this is pointing to the fact that they have intentionally trained themselves to be left-handed. Not that they were born left-handed, but some scholars suggest, because the word here is really weird. It's not left-handed. We have that word in the Bible. The word here is bound in the right hand, okay? And so some, some translators went, well, maybe that means they don't prefer their right hand, and that makes sense, but it could actually be a literal expression that to train themselves in war and give themselves an advantage, they did it one-handed, okay? Nonetheless, expert warriors is what we should read here, okay? The men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword, and all of these were men of war. So it's 400,000 against 26,000 with 700 elites. Verse 18, the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first to us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Finally, we find the voice of God in this text. And it's a repeated refrain from the very beginning of the book. That's how the book of Judges opens. With them in the land, just broken apart, and they inquire, which one of us shall go up first? Judah will go first. But notice what happens. Verse 19, the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah, and the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin, and the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah, and the people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. God sends Judah first, and they're completely routed. They kill almost as many men as makes up the entire army of the Benjamites. And so Judah retreats. The people, the men of Israel, took courage again and formed a battle line in the same place where they'd formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until evening, and they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. Now, recognize here that there's a pattern that we need to see, and then there's a pattern that's in contrast that we need to see. We'll deal with the contrast one first. Okay? God's given them permission. What has that meant every time we've encountered battle in the book? God's going to fight for them and give them the victory. There's only one exception, and that's the city of Ai. Remember the story there when Achan hides some of the goods of Jericho that were supposed to be dedicated to the Lord in destruction? And because of that, when they go out to take Ai, they're routed by the enemy, and they come back, and Joshua falls on his face before the Lord. He says, God, have you left us for dead? He says, get up, there's sin in the camp. We see that playing out again, but we go, wait, why? And so they come and they weep before the Lord, but notice, notice they don't go, what's wrong? That's the only question they don't ask. They just say, God, should we try again? 
the, the one possibility here, you know, here's another thing it reminds me of. It reminds me of Balaam, right? Balaam is the one who God says, hey, don't go with Balak. I can't give you success. He wants you to curse Israel, but that's my people. And so he says, sorry, man, I can't do the job. God told me no. And Balak says, God, oh, that's too bad. I got a lot of money. I was just hoping to leave a lot of it with you. And he goes, let me get a second opinion. And he goes back and God says, yes, go. And what does Balaam find? An angel with a flaming sword standing in his way to take his life. Does God want him to go or not? Those are the questions that you should be thinking about here. But there's also this missing component from Israel. They're interested in God's leading and God's victory. They're not open to the fact that there might be something wrong here. Remember that this starts with Israel's plan to wipe out Gibeah. Israel's plan to take down Benjamin because they stand with him. They don't inquire the Lord at the beginning. The plan's already in motion, and then they say, hey, God, you good with this? Okay, ho, and they're in, right? So something goes wrong, and God says, try again. Verse 24, the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day, and Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. These are not just farmers. These are soldiers who know how to fight, and they're wiped out, eradicated. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Every step we see them deepening a little bit. They don't just weep, they fast. They don't just ask, they offer sacrifices before the Lord. And here they go to Bethel, okay, a place of spiritual significance, maybe even, because the timeline gets a little bit confusing here, maybe even at one point this is where the tabernacle was. We were just told a chapter ago it was in Shiloh, but that's a different time. But either way, they go before the Lord. Uh, in fact, it tells us here, sorry, verse 27, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And who else is there? Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministered before in those days. Once again, we get to a named character, and it's a significant one. This one's the grandson of Aaron, and we already know him. He's significantly zealous for the Lord. Why is that a shock here? Because this horrible happening of Benjamin's city, Gibeah, behaving like Sodom, it's less than 100 years after the death of Joshua. It's only a generation removed. This isn't hundreds and hundreds of years of downward spiral. This happens near the beginning of the story of the book of Judges. It's like Planet of the Apes when he gets to the beach and he discovers he's in the future. I think I can do that, right? It's a movie from the 70s. I can't spoil it. Here, the author pulls back the curtain and says, by the way, this was pretty early. But nonetheless, they inquire, they inquire rightly through the priest, not just drawing lots. Shall we go once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, go up for tomorrow, I will give them into your hand. Okay, that sounds a little bit more like the Lord we know. He says, this is my fight. So Israel sent men in to ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at the other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city as at other times they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of whom goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. Okay. So like the other days, the Benjamites start to take the day and so Israel starts to run in the other direction and 30 of them die. It's looking like just a, a lather, rinse, repeat. 
but it's actually a plot. Verse 32, the people of Benjamin said, they're routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Maragheba. Okay, so here, all the Benjamites go rushing past, chasing this small part of the army, but they've had the rest of the army hiding in the bushes. So as soon as they go past, they come out behind them. This also reminds us of Ai. It's the same strategy that's used of Ai when they finally have victory. And so here, there's the confidence, we've already done this, we know we can take them. They run out, and then they close in behind them. Verse 34, there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men of all Israel, and the battle was hard, but the Benjamites did not know that disaster was close upon them. So they just start to attack the city directly. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword, so the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. How many soldiers did they have? 26,000 and then 700 elites. Almost all of them die here. Okay. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush who they'd set against Gibeah. The men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah, and the men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up in the city. Same thing with Ai. Okay? So here, they're running with the uh, Benjamites behind them, looking over their shoulder, and then they see smoke behind the Benjamites because Gibeah is on fire that's when they turn around and start to fight back, okay? But the Benjamites look back too, and they see Gibeah on fire, and it's a very different significant signal for them, isn't it? It means, oh, we've been had, okay? Oh, we're in trouble. So, uh, it was when they saw that signal, verse 39, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they're defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city, a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them and behold, the whole city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned and the men of Benjamin were dismayed for they saw that the disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness. But the battle overtook them and those who came out of their cities were destroying them in their midst. So they turn off Stop fighting and run, and the army chases them. Verse 43, surrounding the Benjamites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noah as far far as opposite Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor, and they turned and fled towards the wilderness, the rock of Rimmon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they pursued hard to get them, and 2,000 men of them were struck down. Okay, so now we're getting beyond the soldiers and into... Gibeah proper, into Benjamin proper, okay? Uh, It's an entire routing of the tribe. So notice this, all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor, but 600 men in turn and fled toward the wilderness to the Rock of Rimmon and remained at the Rock of Rimmon four months. Now we're going to find out that's all that's left of Benjamin, 600 men. In fact, notice here, verse 48, the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men, beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. They wipe out everything. All the civilians, all the children, all the women, all the animals. And so this remnant hiding out at the Rock Rimmon, 600, that's all that's left. Now, I would love to stop right now, but to be honest, I don't want to return to the story next week. So we're going to finish the book tonight. Um, Please just stay with me. 
Chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. Now here's another parallel, okay? First off, what they do to the cities of Benjamin, that's holy war stuff. That's exactly what God said they were to do with the enemies of the land, leave no one standing. But here they've done it of Benjamin, and now we see another parallel. No one will marry Benjamin, just as God had commanded them with the enemies, but we're talking about Israel. But it also presents a problem. Because now that the war is over, now that the punishment has been served, there's 600 bachelors who don't have wives anymore. And they go, how how do we fix this? How do we begin to rebuild now that the war is over? And they continue here, verse 2, the people came to Bethel and sat there in the evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? Now, we know why this has happened, right? We can trace it back, all of the actions through, but remember the broader principle here. Why has this happened in Israel? Because Israel has turned so far from the Lord, wholeheartedly. Verse 4, the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And there is one thing that's twice now that they offer offerings and something's missing. There's no sin offerings. There's nothing here that resembles repentance. There is this possible return to worship, or maybe it's still synchronistic, but it's partially right. But what we see here is a lot of actions of men, decisions of men, consulting of God, but it's not God driving. In fact, I think one of the hardest things to deal with in the entire book of Judges is the silence of God, that he doesn't interfere, that he doesn't step in. But they're so far. This is exactly what he said a few chapters ago when he says, look, I'm not going to deliver you anymore. So, verse 5, the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? In other words, who didn't fight with us against Benjamin? Now, what they're going to do here is they're looking for a loophole. They're the ones who made the vows. Now they're trapped in the vows and they're trying to figure out how to not wipe Benjamin off the map. And they go, oh, wait a minute. What about the tribes that didn't come up? And at first, this sounds really good, because then they wouldn't have made a vow not to marry, right? They weren't at the meeting. They missed that part. But more importantly, look at this. Um, For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up at the Lord to Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. It's more chaos. They say, oh, wait, who didn't show up to this and didn't take that vow? Oh, right, it's the ones that we vowed to kill because they didn't show up. And so it continues here, verse 6. The people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for the wives of those who are left? Since we sworn by the Lord that we'll not give them any of our daughters for wives. And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah? And behold, no one had come up from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the, uh, when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword. Also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that's lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. It's holy war language again. But with a slight exception, verse 12, they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. I want you to notice tonight very quickly the echo of the concubine. Right? 
It was by the men of the tribe of Benjamin that this woman was taken advantage of. And now all of these women, their families are murdered and they're taken and given to a man, the Benjamites. But this little loophole plan of theirs, it doesn't work because they only find 400 and they've got 600 men. And so they bring him to Shiloh, which in the land of Canaan, the whole congregation, verse 13, sent word to the people of Benjamin who were at the rock of Remen and proclaimed peace to them. Benjamin returned at that time. They gave them the woman who they'd saved alive, the women of Jabesh Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives of those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel, yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, behold, there's a yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem in the south of Lebanon. Okay, so they go, how are we going to close the gap on this? We've only provided wives for two-thirds. That's not enough to maintain the tribe of Israel. We need to get 200 more. We're out of options. And then they go, you know what? There is a feast at Shiloh. Now, we just, we just found out uh, it's a feast of the Lord at Shiloh. Now, there's three pilgrimage feasts that are talked about earlier that once Israel was settled into the land, wherever the Lord would choose, all the men of Israel three times a year would go to that place to celebrate Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and Pentecost. Maybe it's one of those feasts, but we're going to find out in a minute there are the dancers of Shiloh. We don't know what those, that is. And so it's very possible that this is just another allusion to messed up pagan worship taking place in God's place. But either way, this is the plan they come up with. So this feast is coming up, verse 20, they commanded the people of Benjamin saying, go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyard and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go into the land of Benjamin. Now, there's two possibilities here. Either these daughters of Shiloh actually live in Shiloh, and so they're actually plotting against their own innocent people kidnapping their daughters to find wives. Or even worse, the daughters of Shiloh are from the ranks of Israel broadly, and this is their you know, ceremonial tile for the festival, and these are their own daughters. And effectively here, it's randomized because there's only 200 women that are going to be taken. Either way, it's, it's the concubine all over. It's these men who are just treating these women in this way that has no regard for them as human beings just as a way to solve a problem, a problem caused by men. And so verse 22, when the fathers of the brothers come and complain to us, we'll say to them, grant them gracious to us because we did not take for each man of them a wife in battle, neither did you give them, uh, give them to them, else you would now be guilty. Do you see what the loophole is here? Hey, you said you wouldn't give your daughters to the Benjamites and you didn't because we took them. It's a loophole. It's them just getting around their own vows and promises. But notice who they don't apologize to. Notice who they don't talk to. The daughters. It's craziness. Now, just a side note. We really don't have time for this tonight. But it's really easy to accuse, especially Israel in the Old Testament, of a patriarchy that takes advantage of women. And I would argue that a close reading 
shows that the authors are always aware of when advantage is being taken and abuse. And that the model it presents that is supposed to be ideal is always intentionally seeking to protect women. Okay? Like I said, the Bible is a complex document. If you say this is the consequences of patriarchy, Israel would all say, no, this is the consequences of us losing our minds. Okay. Another time. Another time. So they come up with this plan, verse 23, the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Like I said, one of the right applications of this passage is effectively, come Lord Jesus. Okay, it's like when we sing at Christmas time, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Except the captives here, like ourselves, when we think of ourselves as captives today, are captives to ourselves. We have met the enemy, and the enemy is us. Okay, Israel, apart from God, is, uh, is lost and destructive and hateful, and foolish, and all of these things. But the book does set us up here, not with hope, but with a clear need for a sequel. It was in those days that there was no king in Israel. But he's writing from these days. If you want to find out what happens next, we'll have to return another time. Let's pray. God, what a mess. But I know, Lord, maybe, maybe not at the national level. Maybe we aren't ready yet for the culpability of our own cities and communities. But at the personal level, Lord, we're fully acquainted with our own ability to ruin lives, ours and those around us. We know what happens when we do right in our own eyes. We've found and experienced ourselves what it says in Proverbs when it says, there's a way that seems right to a man but its end leads to destruction. We know what happens when we try and play God because we are not good, because we are not powerful, because we are not just. So we do significant damage to ourselves and to others. And so we thank you, Lord, for sending your son graciously in the midst of this horror that is the people of Israel, that is our own human hearts. You graciously sent Jesus to deal with this to die for this, to forgive this, to clean up the mess, and to impart to us your own righteousness and transform us into your own character. That's why the slavery that is Christianity, to surrender yourself fully and totally to God, is actually freedom. Because in, in the days that we do that, we do what's right in your eyes. And there really is a king in our hearts. And the king is good and righteous and just and loving and pure and perfect and holy. I pray, Lord, that you take more ground in our hearts. And that your kingdom would come in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.